Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Courtside with Beelance and Tennis, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. We are so happy to have with us on tonight a sports journalist who has been a columnist and editor with such magazines as World Tennis Magazine, Tennis Magazine, Tennis Week, and Tennis Channel. In 2017, this guest was elected to the International Tennis Hall of Fame in the contributor category. We will get into this guest's career journey and also talk about his new book scheduled to come out in September called Pete Sampras, Greatness Revisited. It is my privilege to welcome to the Courtside with Beelance and Tennis podcast, Steve Flink. Steve, thank you so much for taking time to talk some tennis and sharing your journey today. Well, David, I'm delighted to be on your show and I look forward to talking some tennis with you. Yeah, for sure. So let's jump right in it. I know you got a new project um, about to be re- released in a few months' time. Uh, new book's going to be called Pete Sampras, Greatness Revisited. How, uh, how'd that project come about? Yeah, I've been thinking about it for a long time and discussing it with my publisher, Randy Walker, about when to, when to release it, what was the best timing. And then it became more and more apparent that this, this, this was ideal timing, given that you know he left the game in 2002 after winning the U.S. Open, won his last match ever against Andre Agassi in the finals of the Open, and then retired announced his retirement the next year. So he's been gone, obviously, for coming up on 18 years. And in that period, along comes Roger Federer, Rafa Nadal, Novak Djokovic. No one could have envisioned that these three men would all eclipse Pete in terms of Grand Slam titles won. But they have, with Federer at 20 and Rafa at 19, Novak at 17. So Pete with 14, which seemed to be a, a number, an insurmountable number, I've seen all three of these guys move past him on that ladder, but I just felt like people need to remember how great he was. It gets obscured by the the uh, exploits of these three giants today, but I think that it, it seemed to me an ideal time to sort of bring people back to the Sampras era and remind them of what how prodigious he was. Yeah, and you know, tennis rivalries play such a big part in the sport of tennis, and. Pete had Andre, Andre had Pete. I'm sure you uh, dove into that topic a little bit in your book. You know, just from the outside, they seem to have an odd kind of relationship. They they both respected each other, um, but they were never the best of friends. They even had a spat, you remember, uh, in Indian Wells in an exhibition, you know, well after both of them retired. But um, anything interesting you could add to to that kind of relationship when you were doing this? I think there was a certain resentment. 
And interestingly enough, he 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 did declined to be interviewed for the book. He was one of the. It was really the only major uh, player that I really wanted to reach that uh, decided politely and respectfully not to talk for reasons I don't really understand. He felt he'd said everything he had to say in his book. So yes, I think you're right. I mean, I and and yes, there was the incident that you described in the exhibition in 2010, but that wasn't. That's not the overriding factor. I just think there was a there was a uh, a certain competitive resentment in Agassi because in his book he made a lot of excuses for some of those losses to Pete and I just think he just didn't ever really fully come to terms with the fact that Sampras was fundamentally a better player than he was. Yeah, under- understandably so. Thanks for uh, adding that. So we just talked about one of your most current projects. Now I want to kind of bring you back to where it all started. And you've been in this business for a very, very long time. How did you get started in this business? And when did tennis really become your pure focus? Well, I got started in it because uh, as a kid, I initially was a, a baseball fanatic, a big New York Yankees fan. My father would take me to the games in Yankee Stadium, and, and I'd have my scorecard, and I, and I knew all the batting averages and the ERAs. And, but that was really from about age 7 to 12. Then when I went out to Wimbledon in 1965, that irrevocably changed my life. And I was 12, turning 13. I, my first day at Wimbledon, just it, it just it changed it sweepingly. And from that day forward, I read, followed it every day in the newspapers. And I went later that summer to the U.S. Championships at Forest Hills, and it grew out of that. So that by the time I was 15, I had the goal to become a reporter. And then I started freelancing in my early 20s and got a job full time with World Tennis Magazine when I was 22, right out of college. So. It was really sort of a passion, a driving, overriding passion in my life. And I was fortunate in my timing because that was really in the middle of the, the tennis boom. And Chris Abbott emerging at that time, Jimmy Connors, Bjorn Borg, and later McEnroe a few years later. So that was a golden era for tennis. And it was a terrific time to be breaking into the tennis reporting field. Yeah, and, and it's interesting. You were that baseball fan. And speaking of myself, my parents are from New York, and they're huge Yankee fans too, so they'll, uh, they'll enjoy listening to this for sure. Um, it's, it's pretty clear, or it's very clear, that you are a tennis historian, and you wrote two books, um, one being The Greatest Tennis Matches of the 20th Century, and you also wrote The Greatest Tennis Matches of All Time. Uh, and I'm looking at the, that second one right now. And that book, you start all the way back from Suzanne Langland versus uh, Helen Wills, and you go all the way up to, uh, let's see, Rafa versus Novak in that lengthy 2012 Australian Open final. Um, and you have a ton of matches. I think you do about 35 matches in there. Um, how much of a kick did you have doing that? those projects, writing both those books, just reliving all those great matches? Yeah, well, you're right. It's reliving. I feel the same way about the Pete Sampras book. It was fun to relive. I had watched all those matches so comprehensively when they were played and it was fun to go back to the tapes and watch them again. Same here with the book. The hardest, the most difficult part of the whole process was getting it down to that list of, of 30 key matches, 30, 35, as you said. It was really about, I guess, ended up at 30. And, and the bottom line is that was, I think, it probably took me, it took me an, an enormous amount of time to come up with that list. But in the end, I, I had a 
I had a certain guidelines where it couldn't be more than two matches for any one player. Yeah. It would have been so easy. Yep. So easy to come up with five Mackinac matches or five Sampras matches or five Borg matches, and it would have been overkill right. uh, on one player. So that helped. That Once I knew I had two lined up for one player, that was going to be it for that particular player. But that was, that was difficult. But the writing of it, the putting together, the looking at the tapes again, reliving as you said it, was immensely satisfying, and and uh, it, it made the project a, a joy to to uh, to do. And uh, both times, I mean, there was less to do in the second book because the first book, the second book is a, an extension of the first, with about half of it is new, and it enabled me to get Roger and Rafa and Novak into the book because they right. were not in the initial <laughs> book of the twentieth century. So right. Great to, great to do that. Now here we are, and that book came out in 2012, and here we are eight years later, and we really haven't had that new crowd emerging. Yes, Stan Wawrinka won his three majors, and Andy Murray won his three, but they, I mean, the other three have still remained the dominant forces in the sport, which is fascinating when you think about it. So you just made my transition really easy. You must be, uh, you must have done a few of these before. Um, (laughs) I wanted, the next topic was, let's talk about the big three, and when I want to kind of discuss it, it's just so wild to me, and when I talk amongst my peers and friends who, who, who love the sport, there, there's these three guys, and then there's everybody else. And generally, you shouldn't have the top three guys be that far ahead of, let's say, number four, five, six, and the rest of the top ten. And yet, here we are, and they, they, they've been so far and ahead of those guys for so long, the only kind of comparison I could think of, and there was only two, there wasn't three, was Martina and Chris. Martina and Chris were so far ahead of everybody else, and they dominated everything for so long. Um, what, what's your take on this? I mean, it's just amazing. It's a story of enduring greatness. No, who could expect that Roger Federer, who last summer would have two match points against Novak Djokovic as, he, as he's approaching the age of 38, and that would have meant that he would have beaten Nadal and Djokovic back-to-back, that he would be that close, that, that, that Rafa would now only be one away from Roger. I mean, the, the fact that you have them winning 20, 19, and 17 majors respectively is just astonishing. And they're and not the done. They're and they're not done. They're not done. <laughs> not at all. Federer may well come back from this latest knee surgery, and who's to say that he's not done? That he, I mean, he's still going to be in the thick of things, and... Djokovic won the first major of the year before all our, our, our world was turned upside down. And and then Rafa, of course, with his 12 French Opens, every time he goes back to the French, he's always the clear favorite. So they, they've just, the fact that they've maintained their drive and dedication and that they still have all this willpower after all they've accomplished is astounding. But I suppose the fact that the race is still so much alive keeps all of them highly motivated. I yeah. think that's a big part of it too. Rafa knowing he's within range, Novak knowing that he should have the biggest upside of that trio uh, in in terms of the next three or four years. So I, I think they all are, they have their motivations and they know they're chasing history and and they've all, it, it's, it's not a cliche to say they've all made each other better players, just the way Christy and Martina did in their time in the 70s and 80s. Do you, what what's really amazing is like this next, whenever these three you know, eventually retire, you know, and when they get to the real latter stages of their career, you know, let's just say Medvedev or team or whoever of the next gen you want to throw out there, 
they'll win like seven majors in their whole career. That's going to sound like it's a disappointment. That's how ridiculous these three have set the bar. You're absolutely right. Because you think about it, you know, in the, the Sampras Agassi era, you know, Pete winning 14 and, and the next of that great American, that was the great greatest American generation with Sampras, Agassi, Chang, and Courier. Yep. And look what happened there. 14 for Sampras, 8 for Agassi, who had a great career. Yep. Courier with four, Chang with one. And so you're right. It's hard to see that the ceiling could be double digits. I mean, possibly, but I think it's going to be very difficult to do. And I think we're going to see more equity at the top. Yeah. There's going to be more a variety of winners and it, it, it will go back to what we've seen in other generations so that guys winning over five majors are going to be doing exceedingly well right <laughs> yeah it's just it's it's just it's just mind-boggling I'm, I'm kind of struggling with the words just because of how high these top three guys have raised that ceiling um you mentioned it a little before you know our world kind of turned upside down here and i'll timestamp our recording um, we're recording this on uh, march 19th and the announcement yesterday, I believe, um, these days are starting to run into each other, is that there will be no tennis played through June 7th. And the day prior to yesterday's announcement, the uh, French Tennis Federation made a unilateral decision to move their tournament, the French Open, to late September, right, a week after the U.S. Open, um, which threw everybody into kind of, you know, anger and that they're not working together what are your thoughts I mean what what's going on in in your mind you've covered this 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 sport forever I mean you've obviously none of us have ever been seen anything like this it's unprecedented for everybody what's your take on all of this well frankly I I found it uh it's the right word I'm not going to say reprehensible but I thought it was really fun just wrong uh, of the French Federation to make that decision and not clue everybody else in. I think they did it because they knew there would be deep opposition within the tennis world as to taking those dates. And I think the biggest problem with it is it's not just that they would be stepping on the toes of the Labor Cup, which is now officially on the calendar and scheduled for Boston, right? What would be, what would be right in the middle of the French Open now? But more importantly, it's how do you go there? One week after the U.S. Open, so they played a major on hard courts at the end of the summer. And they finish up in New York on the 13th of September, and then this, uh, one week later they're supposed to be starting on the clay with right. no preparation, but <laughs> exhausted physically, debilitated, and, and depleted. And I think what you're doing is if you had, uh, say, a Djokovic-Nadal final in New York, the two of them are going to be so spent, it's going to be an almost impossible task to get back up and be ready physically to go best of five again for two more weeks with only one week in between. I just think it's very unreasonable, and I can't imagine that these guys are happy about it. I think we're going to hear something soon, David, from those top guys saying that they, they strongly object to this and want, and want it reconsidered because in some ways I think they're better off to not play Roland Garros this year than to play it under those circumstances. Because yeah. it's just, it, I don't think we want David Goffin winning the French Open with no, all due respect to a David Goffin. I think we, we want to see all of the best players at, in peak form going after that title at Roland Garros and ready and prepared to do so. Well, there are, there are a couple things that I was reading on social media yesterday. You know, when I just said there's no tennis through June 7th, someone said, you know, the French Tennis Federation, they must have heard that like a day early. 
um, and they moved it then. And then the other the other thing I said is they're gonna they did this knowing that they'd have to ask for forgiveness instead of asking for permission because they would they know they would never get permission to do something like that. But um, it's all crazy. It's it's really crazy. Yeah, and it is crazy. It's crazy, and it, uh, I I just find that I can't imagine that. Those top guys, especially Nadal and, and Djokovic, Roger Federer at this stage, I think Paris, it's fun for him to still play there and to be in Paris, but he doesn't really believe he's going to win a second French Open title. He knows his real chances are in, in, in especially Wimbledon is his prime chance with the U.S. and Australian Opens as a backup. But right. I, he wouldn't be as distressed by it, although I don't think he'd be happy about the Labor Cup, which he's heavily invested in going getting hurt that way. But the other two guys who would have both would have such a great chance to win in Paris if they are, are physically fresh. I, I just gotta I have to believe that they're very disconcerted by this move. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, Steve, I uh, wanted to thank you for taking time and, and walking us through all this stuff. It's it's crazy times right now and everybody's taking it day by day and you look at what these players are trying to do to keep busy. I mean it, it's really the first week uh, since all these sporting events, you know, Indian Wells was really first, right? Then you had the conference tournaments with the NCAA basketball. Then you had the tournament being canceled itself. Um, the NBA was basically the night before that. So we're really about one week in, two weeks in, if you count Indian Wells. And we got now through June 7th, and we don't know how bad this virus is really going to um, be in these next few weeks and months. And it's interesting times, and it's interesting to see what players are doing to try to stay in shape. It's, it's something we've never had to uh, witness. We've never been part of before. No, and I think we're going to need to be, uh, we're going to need some good fortune if Wimbledon is going is to make it, you know, starting at the end of June. Can things turn around that fast? I think it's very unlikely, and, and I'm not even convinced that we'll have a U.S. Open on schedule either, but I hope I... I would love to be wrong on those forecasts. Yeah, for sure, Steve. Well, thanks again, and, and best of luck with your new book coming out. I know everyone, uh, whether you're a Pete Sampras fan or an Andre Agassi fan or, or just a general tennis fan, I mean, it's going to be a great book to read, and, and you're so right. Um, with what these top three guys are doing you know, now, do you kind of forget about Pete Sampras? I don't think you do, but... Um, it's important what you did, and it's definitely going to highlight the greatness that, that Pete was. And I'll never forget how many times does Andre have break points on him in big, big games of matches, even love 40, and Pete will come up with three aces and two unreturnables. Just a quick aside to what I was talking or mentioning earlier about Andre not talking to me, but I had terrific interviews with the likes of Jim Courier and Michael Chang and Goran Ivanisevic and and Patrick Raptor and Ed Berg and Mackinac and Lendl and so many others who, who have, have only, uh, they, they, what they, there's so many things they said that are enlightening about Pete and I often bounce those back off of Pete to get his reaction to their comments and it was, it was, a, it was a very enjoyable process. Awesome. Cannot wait to read it. I'm, I'm super fired up and definitely will be, as soon as it comes out, I'm going to get my hands on it. <laughs> Thanks, Steve, and, and hope, uh, you know, if it's okay, if uh, in the future, hope to maybe have you on again. Be delighted to come back anytime. Awesome. Thanks, Steve. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Thank you, David. Bye. 
What a delight to have Steve Flink on the podcast. He is such a great journalist, and he's been involved in the sport forever. Um, Such a privilege to have him on. I hope you enjoyed that. Go get his books. Again, The Greatest Tennis Match of All Time. Then he has Greatest Matches in the 20th Century. Um, He's done a ton of stuff. He's done a ton of writing and reporting. Um, Go follow him, and and obviously when the Pete Sampras book comes out uh, this fall, definitely uh, get your hands on that. Hope you guys enjoyed that interview. And as always, you can find these podcasts, Courtside with Bielens and Tennis, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. They're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, uh, basically anywhere where you uh, normally hear your podcast. Thanks, everybody.